Okay, this morning I'd like you to take your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture, but pretty much we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Those are the major things this morning, so be ready, because I'm really speaking this morning uh, about a controversial subject, and if you notice in the bulletin, the title of my message is tongues. But let me pray. Lord, this morning, as we look at your word, just guide us and direct us through it. For you've given us instruction for all areas of life and godliness. And even the ones that ended up being confusing and um, are surrounded by a lot of controversy. I just pray, Lord, that as we look at your word today, you would give us a sense uh, of the truth surrounding this particular subject so we can understand it better, to be able to articulate it to others and also just to be settled in our own mind about what is going on today based uh, as opposed to what it says in scripture. And I pray that you would guide us in this way in Christ's name, amen. So it has been my observation that many of the proponents of the whole charismatic movement fall into the category of those who base their opinion about tongues mainly upon experience and emotions rather than the facts of Scripture. It seems that if a person wanted to discover the real meaning and significance of something, they would go to a reliable source to inform their understanding. If we are going to form an opinion regarding the person and work of the Holy Spirit, there is only one reliable source to inform our understanding, and that is the Scriptures. To study them without outside pressure causing one to redefine what it says or dismiss what is written in the text of Scripture itself. So this morning, I would like to just put out there, first of all, the purpose of spiritual gifts. The first purpose of a spiritual gift is God's glory. It says in 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in the serving of one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is, one, is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in other words, we are to minister for God the gifts he's given, not to God. Second purpose of spiritual gifts is the common good of the church. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So it's always we're given spiritual gifts for the common good of the whole congregation. In other words, gifts are given for others in the church. A third purpose of spiritual gifts is the edification of the church. In 1 Corinthians 14, 12, it says, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. And that's the building up of the church in the truth. And then it also goes on in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, it says, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. In other words, someone who is proclaiming the word of God in language that can be understood is always for the building up uh, of the church 
the exhortation of the church and the consolation or comfort of the church. So that's spiritual gifts in general. But what is the purpose of tongues? And of course, if you translated tongues in the scripture as just languages, you would be fine. You would be fine. So the purpose of tongues, and this is what I'd like you to do, is take your your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. Because right in Acts chapter 2, tongues was an invaluable practical gift to help disseminate the message of the gospel swiftly and correctly. If you look at Acts chapter 2, you'll find that what's going on here is that the Jews were gathered together in Jerusalem for the feast, specifically the Feast of Pentecost. And when they got there on this occasion, they heard the Lord speaking to them with men of other tongues or other languages. All who spoke with languages or tongues were Jews. Look at verse number 6. It says, Acts 2, 6. And when, they, when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 8, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And of course, in Acts 2.11, it says, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. Now, what is interesting in these passages is that in two of the passages, the Greek word for language is dialect. We get the word, it's the word dialectos, which we get the word dialect. That means they were hearing the truth not only in their own general language, but in their specific dialects. Just like us, we know somebody who's from the South, right? All right, whether it's a a change in how they say things, or not, or even in South Jersey, or in New York City, everybody has a a certain way of speaking. We know, hey, are you from there? Are you from there? Are you from there, right? And that's that's so in all countries. They know where you're coming from. They know the sounds of of how you speak. So here, we see that they were listening to these Jews speak in a language they never studied before, and they were speaking in these people's own dialects. That's even a greater miracle to be able to do that. So the different tribes of people, the different nations were speaking in a common language. And if you notice in Acts chapter 2, verse number 9, all that heard them speak with tongues were Jews out of 18 different nations of Jerusalem. Remember, on these high holy days, there was millions of people there in Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. And what was so amazing about it, as these people heard this, their, uh, these messages in their own dialect, it was being communicated to them by uneducated Galileans, where it says in verse number nine, what were the 18 groups? Parthians, and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Persia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So this is what they were hearing. Now what's going on here? Here we, have you ever gone to a location where there was a new business starting and to get the attention of the people that lived beyond the local community, the owners would rent these very big, large, powerful spotlights and they would rotate them in different directions in the sky, which could be seen for many miles away. You ever see that? letting people know that there's a new business starting. 
and that they were celebrating the grand opening of that business. It always got my attention. Matter of fact, it got my curiosity when I was a kid. And what would you try to do? You would try to go find where that light's coming from, right? And that's exactly what I did. And that's what you did, too. If either you walked there, or drove there, or you rode your bike there, you wanted to find out what's going on. You felt the pull of wanting to follow the lights to see what was happening, what was going on. Well, that is what we see in the book of Acts here. That this is God's grand opening for his church. God is doing something new. And at the Feast of Pentecost, this is where the Lord, in a sense, turned on the spotlights and gets the attention of the men of Judea and all who lived in Jerusalem. But not everyone responded favorably to what was happening. Some accused the apostles of being drunk. Many did not believe and mocked, just as Isaiah already said in Isaiah 28, and that Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21 and 22. And so what happens, notice in verse 14 and 15 of Acts chapter 2, Paul really dis proves the mockers, and notice what it says, verse 14, but Peter, I mean, talk, uh, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. So why did Peter even address the mockers? Because the mockers were hearing something, and they were hearing a multiplicity of foreign languages being spoken at the same time, so it did sound like gibberish. So it, was, it wasn't far-fetched to accuse those who were speaking of being drunk with wine, but in one authoritative swoop, the preacher, Peter, says to these men, these men are not drunk with wine, for it is only 9 a.m. in the morning. No, if you look at the scriptures in verse 16, it says, but this what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. That means approximately 622 years before this event, Joel, the prophet, told us this was going to take place. And who was Joel? He was one of the 12 Minor prophets probably lived in the days of Uzziah. And what was his message? He declared the terribleness of God's judgment. He declared, he denounced actually judgments against the enemies of God or the enemies of God's people. And he, then he sets forth in Joel chapter 3 onward, he sets forth the blessing that would come in the church when God would pour out his spirit on the church and the church would be born. Now I need to go back to back up a bit and give you more of the background concerning what is going on here and why the Lord decided to use the gift of languages, the gift of tongues, in, at this particular time. So the question I would really like to ask and answer is what is the purpose of the gift of tongues or languages? So on the day of Pentecost, God brought the church into existence, and on that day, the church exercised the gift of tongues for the first time in the presence of thousands of Jews who belonged to that generation and who had gathered to Jerusalem for many, from many nations to observe the feasts. There was more than one feast, and during that time of year in particular, it was the Feast of Pentecost. So what was the message to the crowd that day? Well, I'll tell you what, Peter wasn't going to win people that liked him on that day. After the tongue speaking had drawn the attention of the Jews to the tongue speakers, Peter spoke to the crowd of Jews and said to them, look at me. And take heed what I say today. That's authoritative. And notice in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, 
He says, he addressed these men of Israel, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Look at verse number 22. He accused them of killing Jesus. He says in verse 22, Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know, you, you yourselves know, verse 23, this man delivered over by the predeterminate plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So he accused, he accused this, these people of killing Jesus. And then in verse number 40, he issues a warning concerning a judgment of Acts chapter 2. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So therefore, on the first day of the church's existence, the gift of tongues was associated with the concept of God's judgment coming on the perverse generation of Jews who killed Jesus Christ. So speaking in tongues or languages was a sign. In other words, God was turning on the spotlights. So the miracle of speaking in a previously unlearned foreign language was given by God primarily as a symbol rather than as an aid in communicating with the hearers. So here is the purpose of the gift of language. For unbelieving Israel, it was a sign of judgment. And I must remind you that God regularly sent prophets to Israel to proclaim to the people the word of the Lord, but over and over and over again, the people did not listen, and they often abused the prophets and even killed the prophets. And because of that, Isaiah 28, 11, this is what it says, indeed, I will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. And that expressed a principle that every generation of Jews to which God sends a prophet and then they reject him and they reject God's word, God would send judgment by forcing the people to listen to a foreign language of which they would not understand. The ultimate prophet spokesman, which God would send to Israel was his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus indicated often that he was a prophet, where he even says to us in Luke, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. Jesus also repeatedly claimed to be God's spokesman all over the place he did that. And Jesus said his words and his deeds would be greater than the Old Testament prophets. In fact, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 said to the people, listen, God is going to send you a significant prophet like me. Where it says there in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Also, Jesus in Matthew chapter 21 gave a parable specifically about the character of the nation of Israel to the leadership that he was speaking to at that time. And Jesus' parable, remember, was about the man who planted a vineyard. Take your Bibles and turn there for a minute. Matthew 21, verse 33 to 41. I just want you to take you through this real quick to get you to see the sense of what Jesus is saying here in this parable. In verse number 21, 
excuse me, in, in Matthew 21, verse number 33 says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves and to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third, verse 36. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son, verse 38. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Verse 39, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then verse 40, notice notice what it says. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Jesus asks the question. Look at verse 41. And he said to them, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. So who? what's going on here? The owner of the vineyard represents God. The vine, the vineyard represents God's program of operation in the world, and specifically God centered that program of operation primarily in the nation of Israel. The tenant farmers, farmers, who do they represent? They represent the spiritual leaders of Israel. And the owner's servants represent God's Old Testament prophets, the spokesmen for God. And, of course, the owner's son represents Jesus Christ. So in Matthew chapter 21, if you notice in verse number 42, notice the ultimate prophet spokesman whom God would send to Israel, his own son, Jesus Christ, they rejected. It says, Jesus said to them, verse 42, did you never read the scripture? What a slap in the face that was. To the nation of Israel, to the teachers of Israel. Haven't you read the Bible? And then he says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So in other words, instead of continuing to center his program on the nation of Israel as his base of operation, he would now center it elsewhere. And notice in verse number 43 of Matthew 21, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. That's what Jesus is doing on Pentecost. So Jesus warned that those who reject him and his message would be judged. The generation of Jews which saw and heard him would be judged because they did the same thing that their ancestors did. They killed God's last prophet, Jesus Christ. Therefore, The gift of tongues in the New Testament church functioned as a sign to that wicked, unbelieving generation of Jews which had heard and seen Jesus Christ, but then in the end they killed him. So many did not believe and mocked, just as Isaiah 28 told us. In 1 Corinthians 14, he brings up this particular thing right in the middle of that passage. In fact, let's turn there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 28, and this is what Isaiah 28 says, indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue, and when he does that, it says, they will not understand, they will not listen. But notice in 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 21, It says there, in the law it is written, by men of strange tongues 
and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, so then tongues are a sign not for those who, be- who believe but to unbelievers, but prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers but to those who believe. So you see, who were the men of stammering lips and a foreign tongue, at least in Isaiah in that time? It was the Assyrians who spoke Assyrian. So tongues was a judicial sign to Israel because of Israel's unbelief. And the context of Isaiah 28 is set in the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah around 705-701 B.C. The Assyrians invaded Palestine and had conquered and destroyed Israel, that northern kingdom. So the prophet Isaiah admonished the leaders of Judah for their drunken reveling and mocked him. And Isaiah replied to that mockery with a severe warning. The Jews would not listen when God spoke to them in plain Hebrew. So God would speak to them in a language they would not understand. It was a judgment against them. Because of Judah's constant unbelief and the departure from the truth and from the faith, God was going to bring upon her a judgment signaled by languages, by other tongues. So the Lord long warned his people when he laid out before the people his blessings of obedience and his cursings of disobedience. And what were they? As recorded in Deuteronomy, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar and, the end of, and, and from the end of the earth, and the eagle will swoop down a nation whose language you shall not understand. And Jeremiah said the same thing. A nation whose language you do not know and you cannot understand what they're saying. So the warning and prophecy found its fulfillment when the Babylonians conquered Judah in 586 B.C. And even greater judgment would come later against the nation in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. So Jesus himself said that, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me, see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in 70 AD, Titus the Roman sacked Jerusalem and killed 1,100,000 Jews, scattering the rest of them all over the world. It's recorded in Luke's, Luke 21, is whenever it says Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies armies. And they recognize that the desolation is near. And then he goes on to say in Luke, and they will be led captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of Gentiles are fulfilled. So the message to Israel was clear. No longer would God confine himself to one people As a channel, no longer would God operate his work of grace through one nation that speak one language. Their unbelief changed all that. Tongues, then, were the sign of removal of national blessing on Israel, and God now would speak to all nations in all languages. So for Israel, in general, It was a sign that God, the plan of God will now extend beyond them. And that's what the rest of the prophet Joel said. Without going into the detail, back in Acts chapter 2, if you you notice in verse number 16, he says, In the last days, and it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth my spirit, and that's exactly what he does on the day of Pentecost. 
It was with the first coming of Jesus Christ that initiated the start of the last days that we have been in the last days for the last 2,000 plus years. And the last days is that last period of the world which is ushered in by the first coming of Christ and continues to the second coming for judgment. That the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost also initiates the work of God as he wanted the church now to continue in it. That particular work, not Israel, but all people groups that would come into the church. That means during the, this era that God is continuing to bring Jew and Gentile into one body, and that one body is called the church. Now, we also know from Joel that that message will be a universal message of the gospel, that he will pour out his spirit on all mankind, and then he also, it will be also the universality of the messengers of the gospel. Who will they be? And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit. So, Voicing the saving message of God will no longer roll off the lips of Hebrew-speaking prophets, but the universal proclamation of the gospel will come through a multiplicity of languages from every pre-people group on the earth. And that's what's happening today. We're in it right now. That God will call Gentiles to salvation and at the same time, will chasten Israel for her unbelief. And it's clear from the passages of scriptures in Acts chapter 2 that the prediction of the prophet Joel has not literally and fully been entirely fulfilled. For he tells us there that Joel's prophecy in its ultimate fulfillment seems to be relating to the, a future time known as the day of the Lord. Where... There will be one spirit baptism outpouring for the church beginning at Pentecost and another spirit outpouring for the Jewish and Gentile believers who are alive during the day of the Lord. In other words, from the day of Pentecost until the rapture, the church will become the focus of God's operation here on earth. And after the rapture, the nation of Israel will become will once again come back into center circle in the tribulation part of the day of the Lord, the Israelites will turn to their Messiah and receive him whom they have pierced, and the kingdom will be restored to Israel. And then we see that the next thing that happens is the promise of a sure harvest of souls for the kingdom will come. That will be the climax. So let me remind you that when you are reading through the book of Acts, you see that the gospel goes to, uh, it goes to the Jews, it goes to the Samaritans, it goes to the Gentiles. In every one of those groups, they receive the truth of the word of God and they speak in languages because everywhere the Jews are found in the world, God is proclaiming to them, this is a sign against you for your unbelief. And so it was clear, no matter you, where you went in the world, God's program was changing. In this transition error, the ultimate for all people will be found in Jesus Christ. So all will come and have to hear the gospel to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So the purpose of the gift of languages as a sign to the Jews is no longer needed and hasn't been since Jerusalem was, was destroyed in 70 AD. The conclusion should not be looked at as limiting the Holy Spirit, but as true to the teaching of the Spirit and a more accurate understanding of the nature and the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit. So that is the historical background for this gift of tongues. Now the question comes up, 
okay, what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So I'd like you to turn there. Even though I'm not doing a verse by verse, I just want to remind you that if you think of the book of Corinthians, you have to understand this, that probably it was one of the most messed up churches of all the churches. Because if you read Corinthians, what is Paul doing? He's correcting the vision that they have amongst each other. He's correcting their carnality. He's addressing the adultery in the congregation. He, he's saying, you guys are going to court with each other, so they have lawsuits against each other. Why are you doing that? And then their, their abuse of the Lord's table. Some people were dying because of that, and some even denied the resurrection and in chapter 15. So there's a lot of problems going on in the congregation at 1 Corinthians. So what we see, we see the Corinthians' abuse of the gift of tongues. See, it needed to be examined again. It needed to be held in check. There needed to be checks and balances in the church. So the Corinthian church was a place of carnality. It was, a, it was a place of extremism. It was a place of cliques, of do-your-own-thing philosophy, which became a hotbed of confusion. And right in the beginning of the epistle, Paul was concerned about their baby faith. Right there in, in actually chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in verse 10 through 13, this is what he says to them. He says, I, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. For I have seen, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that you, there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I of Cephas, I of Christ. And then he questions them and he says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So in other words, there was immaturity. There was confusion in the church. And Paul is writing to correct them about their misuse of the gift of tongues, that tongues were being used incorrectly in the church. So if you use it incorrectly, you will do harm and not good. Historically, Corinthians was, in the first century, had a fair amount of mystery religions who made wide use of Tongues as a static speech, un -unders un -unders uh, a speech that could not be understood. Nobody could understand it. It was a kind of a babbling. And the Corinthians had apparently corrupted the gift of tongues by using the ecstatic counterfeit. The Apostle Paul was writing to correct their mis misuse of the gift of tongues. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse number 2, which, before I read it, this is not a commendation to the Corinthians, but a condemnation to them. And he uses satire when he says in verse number two, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, the absence of the definite article in the original Greek, it can be translated a god, referring to a pagan deity. Or if translated, he speaks to God, is not meant to, as an encouragement to do that. It only points out that it is only God who can understand in the assembly. And remember, gifts were not to be ministered to God, but for God. Because it was always to build up. And so remember, it's, the church is always to be edifying each other. In verse number 5 of 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Now I wish 
that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who, prophets, who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. What Paul writes, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, this is a wish that will never come true. For he already taught that God's, God purposely did not give the gift of tongues to everyone. And then we also know that all do not have the gift of healings, 1 Corinthians 12.30, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? So this is hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a point in order to remove any doubt about his feelings about the gift of languages. He was not against the true gift of language, the Apostle Paul. Tongues are from God. He was concerned about the abuse of the gift. And so how are they abusing this gift of tongues? They are these gifts were being used for selfish ego building. As you see in 1 Corinthians 14 in verse number 4, it says, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. See, the Apostle Paul already used the same Greek word, in 1 Corinthians 8.10 to refer to the wrong use of edification, where he says in that chapter, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened, that's be edified to eat things sacrificed to idols. He's saying that's the wrong use of this particular word. So remember that all spiritual gifts are not for personal use, but for the building up of the church. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16 and 17, otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the gift that say the amen? At your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. So the whole point is that prophecy or speaking in languages, that could be understood as superior than what a language that you didn't study and then you uh, communicate and then someone has to, of course, interpret. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the tongue speaker was being selfish, ignoring the rest of the people of the congregation. So the point, the message of God must be understood by the mind in order to have any kind of value at all. Anything that was gibberish or ecstatic that couldn't be understood, couldn't edify the church, and therefore could not be understood by the mind that was useless. If someone speaks in a foreign language with no one to interpret, no one can understand. No one will learn anything. No one will be built up in the faith. So, in other words, tongues, there was a principle of no confusion in the church. It's God doing things decently in an order. Where tongues were to be assigned to unbelievers in verse 22, tongues were to be used for the edification of the church, verse 26, no more than three people in the assembly were to speak in tongues during the service, and then each in turn, verse 27, there was to be no speaking in tongues unless they should be interpreted. See, there's no profit apart from interpretation. There's no understanding what God was communicating apart from interpretation. Any confusion or disorder in the assembly of, of believers was an indication of something that did not originate from God. In verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Also, 
in the apostolic church, women were to keep silent and not to speak in tongues. That the women, in verse number 34, are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to be subject, are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. So silent submission, the women is not to have an authoritative voice in the Christian assembly. Also, the recognize these regulations were a recognition of the command of God. Verse number 37, I write to you, what I write to you are the Lord's commandments. Even, he says in verse number 78, listen, even lifeless things expect a sensible sound. If you hear a harp, you expect it to give a sound that you could understand, that you could relate to. If somebody is going to blow a trumpet, and call people to war, you want to make sure that the trumpeter knows the right tone, uh, right noise to communicate through that trumpet so they would gather for war. So that the Christian, Christian truth cannot be communicated through meaningless sounds. You have to know what it says. You have to hear it and understand it. So if it's not able to be understood... If it's not done orderly, it was just fleshly immaturity. So they abused it. They abused the gift. Now, fourth thing I want to say that is the cessation of tongues. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so turn back there, and I want you to notice in verse number 8 through 10, there's a very temporary nature of the gift of tongues. For it says in verse number 8, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are, there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, the whole context of Chapter 13 is really the superiority of love. Love has an eternal durability to it. Love will never fail. That is used in contrast with the gift of prophecy and tongues and knowledge. These will fall short, but love won't. So, again, looking at that passage, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. Meaning what? That prophecy is the oral communication of God's truth before the books of canon were written. We have here that it is in a, the passive here that means that, um, and then also in where knowledge is concerned, it will be done away too. That means that it will be rendered inoperative. Something is going to act in order to stop prophecy and knowledge. But if you notice, a different word used uh, for tongues, tongues will cease. That is the middle voice. And of course, the middle voice, the subject participates in the result of the action, indicating that tongues will die out of its own accord the gift of tongues would cease before the gift of prophecy and knowledge. So scripture tells us something is going to abolish prophecy and knowledge. For it says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So prophecy and Knowledge will be acted upon by some other force, and they will be done away. So in our passage, the other force is the perfect thing. It will cause prophecy and knowledge to be inoperative, while the gift of tongues will cease by itself before the perfect thing. Now that is why we, we see tongues kind of disappearing from the text after verse number 8 
while the reference of prophecy and knowledge go on. Now, you, you have to ask the question, what does it mean when, when the perfect comes? Well, the perfect can be translated also that which is finished or something complete or something mature. It's not actually talking about absolute perfection. Well, there's many suggestions as to what this means, the perfect thing. Some say it's the maturing church, others the rapture, others the second coming, others the eternal state, and some the completion of the canon of Scripture. So when that which is perfect is come, which is in the neuter, it is not the masculine, so it probably is not talking about Jesus Christ. I think the strongest interpretation is either the eternal state, where the new heaven and the earth created after the kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, there will be, uh, be, there will be prophesying and teaching and a worldwide increase of knowledge, if somebody holds to that, where Old Testament believers will be at the first resurrection for Christians who will be at death or the rapture. It seems to follow things, but I, 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 don't, I don't lean to that. I think the, interpret, the correct interpretation for this would be the completion of the canon of Scripture because we know in part, as it says in the text, and we preach in part that the gift of tongues was a revelatory gift. In its nature, it was revelatory. And when the revelation of God was complete, tongues ceased. Right, we, we, uh, before the completion of scriptures, Christians saw themselves as imperfect. Like it says in Corinthians, looking at a polished mirror, you couldn't see everything in the mirror. But with the full revelation of God's word, everything became clear. Everything became clear. So when the New Testament was finally complete, prophecy and knowledge were rendered inoperative. Therefore, it's talking about the coming revelation of God, which was the entirety of the Bible. We have today a complete, mature revelation. All God wants us to know has been revealed right in the written word. And if we contrast that with what he said in 1 Corinthians 13, now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Here is the contrast that these three abide through the ages. Those three, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, do not last through the age. That prophecies and knowledge become inoperative with the completion of the revelation of God that he was giving to the church, which is the whole Bible. So because of that, I believe that the gift of tongues had already ceased once the word of God in about 98 AD was complete. And then you don't see that, uh, that use of it for many hundreds and hundreds of years, never recorded in history. So I know that was a lot, but I felt I wanted to do it one time. But let me just give you some concluding remarks and observations. Today, tongues is not like the first century. It's not like the first century gift. What is practiced as the gift of tongues in many churches today would not likely not be accepted by most of the church as the true gift of tongues practiced in the first century. The ecstatic utterances predominantly heard in the Pentecostal and charismatic circles today was not typically equated with the Bible's description of the gift of tongues. So then you would have to ask, well, what's going on then? Today, tongues also, in a prayer closet experience, bears no resemblance of the gift. Charismatics still commonly practice tongues as a private prayer language. Some assert that tongues is a prayer language to God and not meant to be spoken to others in the church. 
They claim it is meant to edify the speaker privately. However, that contradicts the entire teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, which stress love and edification as the reason of the exercise of spiritual gifts. Edifying self is not the proper application of spiritual gifts, any spiritual gift, that is. Spiritual gifts are not the private edification, but edification of the whole body is the goal of all spiritual gifts. I had a good friend, Pastor Tom Leake, went to seminary with. Um, when people used to ask him, is the gift of tongues for today, it's still going on, he would say, well, if it is going on, then it's going on. But then he said, however, if all that is going on today in churches is the expression of various ecstatic sounds rattling off something highly emotional and nonsensical, then all that is being heard is a cheap imitation of the real gift of the Spirit. It is not the real speaking in tongues. So no matter how much someone claims it is going on, it isn't. And they should stop claiming it. Likewise, it is not wrong to forbid to speak in ecstatic utterances since it is not the true spiritual gift, end quote. And just a note, if God makes an exception and gives some missionary the power to speak in a foreign language, to, to communicate the gospel for the first time to a new group of people, that is not a defense of the con continuity of the gift. The exception actually proves the rule that the gift has largely ceased God still heals people today, but that does not mean the gift of healing from one person has continued. Because God may choose to do something periodically is not the same as the outpouring of the gift in the first century. It's just not. So the gift of tongues, for the purpose it was originally given, has ceased. If the New Testament teaches by precept and occurrence that this particular sign gift is not intended to be, to be the continuing experience of the church, we dare not ignore the weight of biblical teaching and must presume, presume that it is no longer in effect. If you just go through the scriptures, you find in Romans chapter 12 where Paul deals with the gifts of the Spirit. The gift of tongues is not mentioned, nor are sign gifts. Ephesians chapter 4 where it talks about being filled with the Spirit of God and living a spiritual life where he names the gifted men whom the risen Christ had given to the church. The gifts of tongues is not mentioned, nor are the sign gifts. In 2 Corinthians, after 1 Corinthians, the gift of tongues is not mentioned, nor the sign gifts. In Galatians, the gift of tongues is not mentioned, nor are sign gifts. Colossians is silent. Philippians is silent. 2 Thessalonians carries no account or command of miracles, healings, and tongues. 2 Thessalonians does mention the, at the end of the age signs and lying wonders after the working of Satan. Jude warns us about false teachers and their teaching, but nothing about the gift of tongues nor sign gifts, same as James and other places in Scripture. So if I just look at the scriptural evidence, in my personal, scripturally informed conclusion, which is, I believe, based on sound theology and historical grammatical interpretation of the word of God, I do not believe that the modern-day tongues movement does belong in the church today. It does not square with Scripture, nor does it unify the body. Therefore, I do not see it as a work of God that exalts and honors Jesus Christ. What is happening today is a far cry from what happened in the first century church. 
So this telegraphic generation, along with wrong teaching, breeds people seeking more, seeking ecstatic experiences as tongues. But when these things are placed up against a historical grammatical examination, they fail to support that tongues are operative today. They fail to support it. It's actually contrary. So with all that said, that if you go back to Scripture, it's hard to make a defense. That's what's happening today is scriptural. I have to leave it there. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we consider this subject and as we consider what's happening today, Lord, from your word, don't see any evidence that it, it is something that should have been continued. So, Lord, somewhere down the line, it crept into the church, and it has taken over many places as a high priority that even people say that if you don't even speak in this tongue, that you're not even saved. So, Lord, I pray that today would be a day of gathering the information from Scripture that would cause us to make a sound biblical decision on whether these continue today, these gifts, or that they have passed off the scene as not being operative and even tongues having ceased, not being useful for the edification of the church today because we have the full revelation of God's word. So, Lord, please allow us to think through these things as we are informed as Christians not to be ignorant of what is happening all around us. And I pray that you would just help us to continue to study, continue to grow in the faith so, Lord, we understand the scriptures as they're written. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.